This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 7. And as you make your way to the seventh chapter of Esther, I should first take a moment to remind you that this book is focused on the courageous faith of a young Jewish woman named, you guessed it, Esther. Not only that, but the book of Esther also helps us to remember that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is greater than the evil minions who are opposed to our Messiah. Isn't that nice to know? Our God is greater than every evil enemy on the earth. And in order to prove my point, we should take a moment to consider the evil scheme that Satan employed as he influenced an Amalekite man named Haman to attempt to cut off the bloodline which would bring forth our promised Messiah. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book when we first learned about the day when this anti-Semite named Haman craftily, craftily you know, convinced uh, the king of Persia to approve his evil plan, which was to purge the chosen people of God from the entire Persian Empire. And in order to grasp the magnitude of this plan, it'll help us to realize uh, that the Persian Empire spanned from the Indus River in the east through Mesopotamia and then all the way to Turkey in the northwest, and then also all the way to Egypt in the southwest. And as we consider the borders of the Persian Empire, we must not fail to notice that the Persian Empire encompassed the entire land of Israel as well. What this means is that Haman's plan, which was to eradicate all of the Israelites living in the land of Persia, well, this would have included the execution of the Jews living in the land of promise. Now, I want to remind you that this was all taking place about 500 years before the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That being the case, I have no doubt that Satan was trying to use the hatred of Haman so that he could then cut off the bloodline of the people who were chosen to bring forth the Son of God. And had he succeeded in this evil scheme, well, then there would be no substitutionary sacrifice by which sinners could be saved. Thankfully for us, the protector of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord not only raised up Esther to become the queen of Persia, but he also gave her the wisdom that she needed in order to disappoint the evil scheme of Satan's servant, Haman. And in this way, God used Esther to indirectly secure our salvation by protecting the chosen people from certain genocide. Now, with all this in mind, I want to pick up our study of this historic account, which is found here in the book of Esther. If you would look with me here at Esther chapter 7, we're going to begin reading there at verse 1. Here we learn that uh, the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Now, I want to stop here, and I want to remind you, it was back in chapter 5 where we first learned about the day when Esther risked her life by entering the court of the king without invitation. This could have resulted in her execution. And without debate, this was a decision that took an incredible amount of courage. 
And, and, but yet she stepped up. She had the courage. She had the faith to take this step forward, knowing that this was God's plan for her life. And after receiving the green light to approach the king, you know, the king sticks out the scepter and, and gives her the, the green light to advance. That's when Esther then invited him and Haman to join her at a banquet that she had prepared for them. And it was there at that banquet where Esther then invited them to join her for yet another banquet, which she was preparing for them on the next day. Now, I don't know about you, but the only thing better than being invited to one banquet is to be invited to two banquets. It's incredible. Seriously, though, I can't help but to wonder if she lost her nerve along the way at that first banquet. And to explain what I mean, it's important to remember that, you know, she hadn't yet revealed that she was a Jewess to her husband, uh, to her husband King Ahasuerus. And as she prepared to reveal that she was uh, you know, the daughter of Mordecai, I, I want to remind you that King Ahasuerus, he's still unaware that he had married a Jewish woman. And not only that, but he himself had already signed an official decree, which gave Haman the authority to execute all of the Jews on the 13th day of Adar. And so it's possible that as she's considering all of this, maybe she lost her nerve there at that first banquet and wanted to call a mulligan. You know, she's just thinking, hey, <laughs> let me try this again tomorrow. Maybe. It's also possible that this was precisely the way that the Lord was leading her. And and I would even say that it seems to me that that's exactly the case. The reason I say this is due to the fact that this was the same night after that first banquet when King Ahasuerus found himself with a case of insomnia. And as a result, the king called for a servant to come and read to him from the kingdom chronicles of Persia. And it was during that time when the king was reminded about the Jewish man named Mordecai who had saved his life by exposing an assassination plot against the king. And it's for this reason that that King Ahasuerus, he actually ordered Haman, the, the mortal enemy of Mordecai, to go and honor Mordecai by leading him around the city square uh, on a horse. In this way, we can see how the Lord was actually using that night after the first banquet to prepare the heart of the king to then be ready to defend the family of Mordecai, which of course included his adopted daughter, Esther, who had become his queen. And as we consider the way that the Lord used this time between the first banquet and the second in order to work in the heart of the king, well, it's important for us to realize that there are times when an unanswered prayer is really just the Lord's way of working all things together for the good of those who love him. There are times when an unanswered prayer is not a no, it's a wait because I've got stuff to do to work this out. I want to remind you that God won't rob us of our free will, but he does create the conditions which help us to then make the right decisions as we submit to his will. And, and listen, if you've been praying for something that's in line with God's will and he has yet to, to answer that prayer, don't get discouraged by that. Don't get discouraged because the chances are God is actively working in the hearts of those that we're praying for. And a lot of times, you know, we want the Lord to work overnight. And, and you know, in the case of, of King Ahasuerus, he certainly did. But more often than not, God doesn't work overnight like that. There's a lot of moving parts. You know, we're struggling to play chess and God's playing like infinite chess. He's working in the hearts of all the people on the planet. And so with that, don't let unanswered prayer be a discouragement. Just let it become an opportunity for patience, which then perfects us. 
Maybe you're a single and you're praying for a spouse. Well, chill out. You know, God might be trying to perfect them right now before you get married to them. You might be married and you're praying for a different spouse. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) You might be married to an unbeliever and you're praying for their salvation and you're wondering why, why isn't God working? Well, you don't know. He might be working overnight. He might be working over time to bring them to faith. You just be faithful to keep praying. Maybe you're a parent who, who is praying for a prodigal child who, who just seems gone forever. Keep praying. Don't be discouraged. God's working in their hearts. You might be praying for the health of a family member and there, there doesn't seem to be any healing. Don't be discouraged. Just keep praying. You might be praying for a promotion at work, or you might be praying for the corrupt leaders of our country. And you might be wondering, why isn't God answering my prayer? Be patient. Don't be discouraged. Just understand that God has to go and work in the hearts of all these other people that we're praying for. And I'm guessing, you know, I mean, it's an impossible task for us, but I can only imagine what it takes for the Lord to work in in the hearts and the minds of all these people. I realize that there are times when it feels like the Lord is ignoring our prayers. And knowing how this can cause us to become discouraged disciples, I encourage you to just be patient and wait on the Lord and keep praying. And as we rest in his grace, we can be confident in knowing that God really does work all things together for the good of those who love him. And he is going to work out his perfect will. And in order to further make my case here, I want to turn our attention back to Esther chapter 7 here. Let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 2. Here we learn that it was on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, and it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. And here in these verses we find Queen Esther. She's inadvertently informing the king about her Jewish lineage. But rather than just coming right out and saying, hey, I'm an Israelite. And I'm the, you know, adopted daughter of Mordecai. And rather than just, just kind of being real blatant like that and, and real, you know, forthright, she instead informs him that she and her people had been targeted for extermination and annihilation. And it's for this reason that she was pleading for her life and for the life of her people. And as we consider her approach, you know, I can't help but to remember something that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 25. It's verses 11 and 12 where he declares, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. In other words, you know, when it comes to the difficult task of sharing those things that might be hard for some to hear, we must not forget that the right time and the right tone are just as important as the right information. 
Uh, all these things are important so that we're not shutting the ears of the people we're speaking with. And with this as the goal, we ought to seek the wisdom of the Lord as we set out to communicate with others, and especially those who are opposed to our commitment to Christ. You know, when it comes to communicating our faith and our trust in the Lord with those who are unbelievers, we have to be wise about the way we communicate with them. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 10. It's there where he declares, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Listen, when it comes to communicating with those who are let's just say, antagonistic to the Christian faith. Uh, it's important for us to remember that we're sheep living in the midst of wolves. We're sheep living in the midst of wolves, or, or, or you know, we're, we're, we're not equipped for the battle in a worldly sense. And it's for this reason that we should spend time seeking the help of the Holy Spirit who can help us to become wise as serpents. And listen, serpents need to be wise. I realize that most people have snake phobias and these sorts of things. But, but listen, the snakes, they're more afraid of us than we are of them. They don't have arms or legs, you know. Their, their only defense is, is to strike out at you. And, you know, I mean, think about that. Think about your only fighting technique is the headbutt, right? It's just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not great. <laughs> so they try to get away from, from us as quickly as possible. And, and that's wisdom for the snake is, hey, let me, let's get out of here and find a dark hole. And we need to be wise as serpents in the, in the same way of realizing that if we try to fight this wicked world with the wickedness of this world, we lose. And so we need to spend time seeking the help of the Holy Spirit so that we might know how to handle the Hamans of this world. With this in mind, I want to take some time to consider how King Ahasuerus responded to the approach of Esther here. And if you will, let's turn our attention back to the record found here in Esther chapter 7. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 5. Here we learn that King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And here in these verses, we find King Ahasuerus here. He's asking Esther to expose the identity of the one who wanted to harm her. And it's there in verse 6 where, of course, she identifies Haman as her adversary. That word adversary was translated from a Hebrew word which was used of an opponent who, who causes anguish or an oppressor who, who causes affliction. She also refers to Haman as her enemy, and that word enemy was used of a rival who is hostile towards those they hate. Now, as we consider the way that Esther referred to Haman as her adversary and her enemy, you might be interested to know that the same words were also used to describe the devil. For example, it's in 1 Peter chapter 5 where the apostle Peter refers to the devil as our adversary. In Matthew chapter 13, we find the Lord Jesus referring to the devil as the enemy. And listen, I have no doubt that Haman was 
truly an adversary and truly an enemy of the chosen people of God. He was happily helping the devil to accomplish the satanic scheme uh, that the devil was hatching against the people of God. And at the same time, King Ahasuerus had unwittingly become Haman's accomplice. In order to prove my point, I should take a moment to remind you that it was the king who had empowered Haman to create that decree which enabled him to carry out this evil plan. As a matter of fact, it's back in Esther chapter 3. There we learn that the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it is written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Now here in these verses, we're reminded of the fact that King Ahasuerus was the one who handed his authority over to the adversary and over to the enemy of Israel. And while the king was mostly clueless about Haman's plan here, he was still guilty of collusion through his complicity. He was guilty of collusion through his complicity. He had given his authority to the adversary. And in similar fashion, listen, there are times when believers are guilty of knowingly or unwittingly becoming the accomplices of our adversary. And to explain my point, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in John chapter 10. It's verse 10 where he describes our enemy in this way. He declares, the thief does not come except to kill or to steal, to kill and to destroy. Our enemy has come to steal from us, to kill us and to destroy us. Our adversary, the devil, has come to destroy our lives. And there are times when he attempts to use, you know, uh, Christians to accomplish this plan. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus had to turn to Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. And listen, there are times when the enemy will use our so-called liberties to cause other Christians around us to stumble. That being the case, it's important for us to make sure that our liberties aren't leading others into a life of licentiousness. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's here where he declares, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Man, that is heavy duty. Imagine never eating meat ever again. Perish the thought. Tacos hamburgers, I mean, just come on, steak. Okay, all right, let's, let's move on here. 
Paul here is encouraging the Christians there in Corinth to keep their liberties in check. And while he uses here the liberty of eating meats that had been offered to idols, you know, this is something that people were struggling with at this point in time. You know, if, if, if you buy meat in a marketplace of a pagan and, and they offered that meat uh, uh, as an act of worship to, you know, a false god, then will, will the demons of that meat, you know, get in my body if I consume the meat? And, you know, people were struggling with these sorts of things. And, you know, mature Christians understood that, no, nah, that's not going to happen. I can, I can eat that meat and not get demon-possessed. But there were still younger believers who weren't really settled on that and, and didn't really fully grasp it. And so Paul is saying, hey, look, if eating that meat that you bought in the marketplace is going to cause a weaker Christian to stumble over that, wouldn't it just be better to not eat meat altogether? And listen, the same principle should be applied to all of the other so-called liberties that, that Christians enjoy. It's important to understand that our liberties actually become sin if we cause others to stumble with our liberties. And so you might say, well, I, I, I've got the liberty to do this thing, right? But if you're doing it in such a way that someone else stumbles over that, your liberty has become sin. You've sinned against Christ. I like the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14. There he declares, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Christian, listen, the enemy wants to use us. The enemy wants to use us to destroy the faith of weaker believers. And, and it happens oftentimes when I, when I see Christians arguing for their liberty. Well, I have the liberty to do this. And you might have that liberty. Does that mean that you should apply that everywhere you go, anytime, anyplace? No. We need to become those believers who, who, who are conscious and, and, and concerned about the younger believers that are around us. In this way, you know, rather than becoming believers who are unwittingly accomplishing Satan's will, which is destroy our lives, I encourage you to pursue the things which make for peace, which include the things by which one may edify one another. We ought to use our spiritual gifts to edify one another here within our fellowship of faith. At the same time, uh, Christians should also realize that the enemy is also trying to trip us up so that we might allow him into our homes. And with this in mind, if you would, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 7. I want to begin reading there at verse 7 where we learn that the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king, <clears throat> excuse me, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now here in these verses we find Haman, he's coming to the realization that he was about to receive the punishment that he truly deserved. And we must not fail to notice how Haman had concluded here that evil was determined against him by the king. It's very interesting. We see this in, in the middle of verse 7. He saw that evil was determined against him by the king. The just punishment of 
a king was seen as an act of evil in the eyes of Haman. And this is exactly how the twisted mind of the enemy actually thinks. The enemy sees good as evil. And the enemy sees evil as good. And so, you know, this this idea of securing justice, well, in the mind of Haman, that was evil. I like the way that the prophet Isaiah described it. He describes the mindset of those who serve Satan in this way. These are the people who call evil good and good evil. They call abortion health care. They call the mutilation of minors gender affirming care. They call law enforcement agents wicked men and racists. They call conservative Christians terrorists. And it's for this reason that we must use the authority that we've received from God to take a stand against the deceptions of the devil because I'm here to tell you that he's working overtime in this world to convince the people around us that good is evil and evil is good. With this as the goal, we should notice how Haman begged the queen here for leniency because he was convinced that he was right and that this punishment would be evil rather than allowing this genocidal maniac to spend one more day in the king's palace the guards of king ahasuerus covered his face and they prepared him for a just punishment and in similar fashion listen i believe that we too should protect our homes from the attacks of the enemy husbands listen the the enemy wants to come in and have influence over your wife Wives, trust me when I tell you that the enemy wants to come into your home and have influence over your husband. Parents, the enemy wants to come in and have influence over your children. And so much like King Ahasuerus who said, no, you're out of here, that's how we ought to be with the enemy. The devil and his demons want to infiltrate our homes through the movies we watch, through the music we listen to. The enemy wants to use the woke teachers down in the public school system. The, the enemy wants to use the wolves in sheep's clothing who are creeping into the churches and preaching doctrines of demons. And it's sad to say that there are many Christians who will put up with it. And they'll find the enemy in their home and the enemy will say, oh, please don't kick me out. Okay, well... You've made a good argument. Go ahead and stay. Sleep on the couch. No. We need to kick the enemy out of our homes. With that being the case, I encourage every Christian to follow the instructions that Paul presented in Ephesians chapter 5. It's here where he declares, have no fellowship. He doesn't say have some fellowship or a little bit. He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil. Christian, do you realize that the days are evil? I don't know that we really grasp that. But that's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say the days are evil. 
Therefore, rather than living the rest of our time entertaining the enemy who wants to destroy our lives, let's instead expose the unfruitful works of darkness with the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yeah, even if this means taking drastic measures to put Haman entirely out of the house. With this in mind, I want to consider how King Ahasuerus handled Haman. If you would look with me at Esther chapter 7, we'll pick up at verse 9. Here we learn that Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find this eunuch named Harbona. He's encouraging the king to hang Haman from the gallows that he had created for Mordecai. This is a beautiful twist of irony. Because, you know, Haman, the enemy of Israel, ends up being hung from the gallows that he had created for Mordecai. It's just beautiful. Now, if you think this was too harsh, and if you're opposed to capital punishment, I just want to remind you that this was the man who was preparing to commit genocide by exterminating all of the Jews living in the land of Persia. Not only that, but the devil was also using Haman to stop our Savior by cutting off the bloodline of the Messiah. He was trying to rob every Christian here tonight of our salvation. Without debate, Haman deserved the punishment that he received. At the same time, we can also rejoice in the way that the Lord used the courageous faith of Queen Esther in order to ensure that our Savior would be born of King David's bloodline through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And and now that the Lord Jesus has received the punishment that we deserve, sinners can now receive the gracious gift of forgiveness that we don't deserve. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, sinners can now receive the gift of forgiveness that we don't deserve by faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that there is coming a day when the enemy of God is going to receive the righteous wrath of everlasting justice. As a matter of fact, it's actually in Revelation chapter 20. There we learn that the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The cartoons and the characters that present, you know, Satan ruling and reigning in hell, you know, he's got like some throne down there and people are, you know, getting punished at, at, at his, you know, command and these sorts of things. Don't, don't get your theology from television. Even if the title is The Chosen. Don't, don't get your theology from television. It's the wrong place to get your theology. The devil's going to be tormented day and night forever. Those who are just kind of like, I'd rather, you know, party in hell with the devil than than be a servant in heaven. There's no party in hell. It's torment forever. And it's sad to say that those who follow the devil, those who refuse to repent, they're going to end up in the same situation. That's exactly what John says here in Revelation uh, chapter 20. He, He continues here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, 
from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now it's important to understand that this great white throne judgment, this happens at the end of the the millennial kingdom. And, and, and Christian, listen, there is coming this day after the millennial kingdom is, is over, this is when the devil and his demons and, and everyone who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, they are going to receive the punishment that we all, in fact, deserve. And, and while this might seem like cruel and unusual punishment, uh, I would take a moment to ask, what is, what is your basis for justice? Is your basis for justice based on your personal opinion? Because if so, I'm going to find that wanting. Listen, the only reason we can think just thoughts, the only reason why we uh, imagine you know, what true justice should be like is because our creator, who is perfectly just, has given us this sense of justice. Our sense of justice comes from our creator. So who knows better about justice, us or God? Be careful when you start thinking that you know better than God. Be careful when you start thinking that you know, you're, you're much more of a, of a just person than, than, than God is. Our sense of justice is based upon the perfect standard of our righteous Lord who created us. Therefore, we would do well to just be humble and recognize that however he judges on this at the great white throne judgment, every judgment is going to be perfect. He will not make one judgment and we're going to be like, wow, that was just so unjust. Nope. Every decision he makes, every sentence he passes will be perfectly just. And with that, I want to take a moment to consider how guilty we actually are. Uh, And with that, we need to take a moment just to consider the depth of our depravity. And with this in mind, notice again here in Revelation chapter 20, it's verse 12 where John declares, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. From this, we can see that every unrepentant sinner who stands before the great white throne judgment of Jesus, they're going to be judged, how? According to their works. According to their works. And you better believe that God is keeping a record. Right here we learn that all of the things they did are in these books. I don't know how many books there are, but I guarantee there's a bunch. And God is keeping a a list of every lustful thought, every sinful action. He knows about every single sin uh, we've ever uh, accomplished. He knows about every evil thing we've ever imagined. He knows every single time we've cursed his holy name. Not only that, but he also knows about all the times that we've knowingly or unwittingly served the devil and his demons. 
And, and so while we like to think that we're not that bad, because that's what we think, let's be honest. I've been witnessing to people since 1995 and oftentimes I'll ask somebody, why, why do you think God should let you into heaven? And more often than not, what I get from the person is, well, you know, I've never killed anybody. I'm, you know, a pretty good person. Hmm. I think the books will say something different. You might be able to fool your friends. You might be able to fool your parents. You know, you might, you might be able to, you know, put on a nice facade of, but listen, in, in the carnality of our hearts, there is evil. The, the, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? And when the books are opened at the great white throne judgment and all of the sins of an individual are, are listed off, you better believe that God is going to pass a perfect sentence for all of those sins. And according to John here, those who are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire because that will be a just punishment for all of their sins. We deserve to spend the rest of eternity with Satan and Haman. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the king of kings is not only a just judge, but he is also the justifier of those who will repent and trust in him. He is just, but he's also the justifier of those who trust in him. And the reason why is because he's already settled our sin debt on the cross. He paid the price for our sins so that those who trust in him can be forgiven. And with that, if you've already received the forgiveness of God by faith in Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to share this good news with those that the enemy is trying to destroy. Please understand that the unbelievers around us are not our enemies. The unbelievers around us are not our enemies. No, instead, they're trapped in the snares of Satan. He's come to destroy them. He's taken them captive according to the desires of their own fallen flesh. And he wants to keep them locked in this, this bondage of blindness. And the Lord wants to use us to go and set the captives free. And here's the good news. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In other words, the gates that are keeping them locked up can't keep us from storming those gates, going in and taking the captives and set, setting them free with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But it just takes Christians who say, okay, I'm going I'm to stop doing all the worldly things and I'm going to actually get to, the, get to the business of the Great Commission. We have to actually go and storm the gates of hell to then set the captives free. And it takes courageous Christians, Christians that have the courage of Esther. I encourage you, let's follow in the footsteps of Esther by asking our king to empower us so that we can go and preach the gospel message of grace by which the captives are set free. Let's preach the message of Jesus Christ so that we can help unbelievers to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the salvation of their souls. Let's pray.